It's a happy day in Cleveland. The Cleveland Browns beat another eight and three team to be nine and three. When is the last time something like that happened? It's too bad all the water coolers are closed because nobody's able to talk about it. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues Jane Cahoon and Laura Johnston. Chris Ranowski is taking a couple of days off using up his PTO time. You guys watch the Browns game? No. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I was working while I was watching, though, Chris, of course. Yeah, I only got to watch maybe uh, five minutes because I was doing lots of stuff. But, but what a, I mean, it you was know, people, fun, except, you know. And they're undefeated against losers and they are one and three against teams with winning records. And they go in with one of the class teams of the mm-hmm. NFL and they slaughtered them. I mean, the score doesn't even, it's not an accurate portrayal because there were two touchdowns. Well, at the that blunder end. at the end wasn't, you know. Yeah. But, bad, but, 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 they, but that was a decisive victory by a team that, throughout my time in Cleveland has always figured out a way to blow it. So very cool. (laughs) It's a good day in Cleveland. Let's begin. As omens go, how bad is this one? Metro Health is closing facilities through the end of the year because the coronavirus is wiping out its staff. Laura Johnston, this seems a bit frightening. Yeah, you think so. I mean, this is very disconcerting. Metro Health had about 100 employees out sick last week. And so they're closing these facilities in anticipation of continued increases in COVID cases in their staff. So they're moving the staff from the closed facilities to other locations. And this is going to last at least through December. But who knows what happens after that? I mean, it totally depends on the status of the pandemic. So I'm going to name a couple of the facilities that are closing. It's a pretty long list. We have The Brooklyn Health Center, Brunswick, Lindhurst, Medina, Rocky River, the State Road Family Practice in North Royalton, and the main campus behavioral health services um, on their main campus in Cleveland on West 25th Street. So this is after we've heard that the Cleveland Clinic's delaying non-essential surgeries, and nurses and doctors have gone over and over on Governor DeWine's news conferences to tell us how overwhelmed they are, how stretched the staff is. You know, the hospitals keep trying to convince everybody that their staff is not getting this thing at work, that they all throw caution to the wind when they leave, take off their masks and join with people. And we're hearing from people inside the system that that's just not the case, that the hospitals don't want to pay workers comp and they're trying to convince everybody it's not spreading there. But anecdotally, we keep hearing more and more people are actually getting it at work. And let's face it, if you were confronted with all the death and suffering in the hospital, would you really leave there and take your mask off and go hang out? I mean, just it doesn't make sense. Seems like Metro Health is feeling this in a big way. I mean, that their staff is getting sick and and so much so that they can't take care of people the way that they would want to. It's more evidence of why we got to get the vaccine to the frontline healthcare workers, huh? Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. The nurses I know are incredibly cautious. And so I don't think they're leaving and going to the bar. You know, it it shows that, you know, Chris Wernowski is big on this. But even if you don't care about getting COVID, you probably care about some other health issue that you have. And you're not going to be able to get treated for that at these practices that you've normally been with. So this is even if you don't have COVID, it's affecting everybody. And it's pretty shameful that the hospitals are trying to make this sound like it's your responsibility by their employees when it's really not. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. After reading reporter Andrew Tobias's story about Sam Randazzo, the former Ohio PUCO chief whose house was recently raided by the FBI and who, it appears, received $4 million in a suspicious payment from First Energy, 
I'm feeling even more outrage about the HB6 bribery and racketeering scheme that centers on First Energy. Jane Cahoon, how can Ohio Governor Mike DeWine survive this scandal after he was the one that appointed Randazzo and keeps standing by him? I don't know how you could be more outraged about this, Chris, than you already were, but, th- but that's really I something. Am. <laughs> you I know, $4 million. Maybe... Think about that. You're appointed right. the head of the PUCO, and First Energy gives you a $4 million payment under some bogus, hey, we're going to wrap up some contract. And it's out, and nobody knows. You know, the governor, nobody, it's not disclosed. I mean, it boggles the mind. $4 million from the utility you're trying to regulate, which just happens now to be involved in the biggest bribery scandal in the history of the state. Right. We should say that that it hasn't been uh, proven definitively that Rendazzo got this payment. But this this SEC filing that First Energy made after it did an investigation, you know, based on the HB6 scandal, they uncovered the fact that this payment occurred to a um, like an entity. <laughs> How do they yeah. describe it? Like as as an entity associated it. with an individual who subsequently was appointed to a full time role yeah. as an Ohio government official directly involved, you know, in regulating First Energy. Of and course, so resigned. it certainly fits his description. And Randazzo cited that in his right. resignation letter, saying this was going to, you know be a distraction that this, the publicity on this is, you know, not good. So that's, that's why he resigned. But, but uh, just to get back to your question, uh, do I need to remind you that the whole HB6 scandal had like zero effect on the election for the state legislature (laughs) with, with Republicans solidifying their majorities? So I I don't know, you know, how this is going to affect DeWine, but there is more scrutiny on him as he, is is preparing to name a replacement for Randazzo because of these, you know, ties between First Energy senior officials in his administration and the screening committee that that nominates the uh, PUCO commissioner candidates. You know, critics are saying they want better disclosure requirements for PUCO members as well. They're they're also seeking for the PUCO to throw out and reconsider decisions that Randazzo made when he was chairman that affected First Energy. The the one guy from the Environmental Law and Policy Center, you know, said that this $4 million payment, he just called it staggeringly corrupt. So they, they want to, you know, rescind uh, all that stuff. And he said the entire commission process has, has been tainted. Right. That That's the problem. This commission is a stooge for the utilities instead of a regulator. The guy running the panel that makes the recommendation that DeWine has huge first energy ties. What's wrong yeah. with this picture? Where are the people with ties to me? I'm the one that has to pay these bills that are not fair, that, you know, clearly now we know the whole rate structure First Energy gets is corrupt. So who who is picking the next PUCO chairman who's thinking about me and all the other rate payers in Ohio? That's an excellent question. And I think the governor would be wise to to keep that in mind as he makes this decision. But as you said, this nominating panel, the 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 chair is a guy who for years has lobbied for First Energy and the Boich companies, which is a coal company that does business with First Energy. And another council member is a lobbyist for a union that gave a quarter of a million dollars to Generation Now. That happened to be the 
political nonprofit uh, that prosecutors say, you know, was a dark money group used to funnel bribes to uh, ex-House Speaker Larry Householder, who who's the uh, regarded to be the ringleader of this gigantic bribery scheme in the in the HB six probe. So, what I didn't know was that there was a time when the PUCO was elected. And apparently they decided that was a problem, having people pick the PUCO commissioners. So they came up with this process, which has loaded it with stooges for the industry. I I, I think that Ohioans have no representation here. This is as bad a situation. as And and look no further than a $4 million payment to the guy in charge of it. It (laughs) boggles the mind. Anyway, great story by Andrew. Really put the, the focus on this thing in a way I had not seen before. And like I said, made it even more outrageous. And Mike DeWine really should be ashamed of himself for having appointed this guy, the PUCO chief. And I'm stunned that he has not said that, that he's not come out and said, man, did I make a mistake? That was the wrong way to go. Instead, he says he's a good man. And I don't know that he's under investigation, even though the FBI raided his house. You're (laughs) listening to this week in the CLE. Is intensive care occupancy in Cuyahoga County at a record for the pandemic? What about the county positivity rate for coronavirus tests? And does this explain why the medical examiner needs refrigerated trucks? Laura Johnston, things are looking bad for Cuyahoga County, let alone Cleveland, which set a record for its number of cases yesterday. Yeah, it is not looking good here. Um, it's looking pretty grim. I just want to note there is one bright spot that our data guru, X, Rich Exner, pointed out that the number of COVID-19 patients throughout Ohio was down Friday for the third consecutive day. However, they're still at near record levels of more than 5,000 patients. Consider that it was about 563 at one point in September. So we're 10 times that level. And Cuyahoga County is looking worse, honestly. So um, the number of occupied beds and in intensive care units at hospitals here um, has surged to 87% of ICU beds filled. That is the highest we've seen. That's up 6% from last week or since November 20th. And then if you want to look at regular beds, we're using 81% of those. Compare that to 74% on November 20th. And if you think those are depressing, consider this. Of tests administered by Metro Health, Cleveland Clinic and University Hospitals between November 22nd and November 28th, 24.9% were positive. That is that rate is 10% higher than the entire state. And in October, we were at 6.7%. Yeah, it's it's getting scary. Why? And so the refrigerated trucks, they're just planning to have a lot of death as a result of this. Yeah. So the Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner's Office is planning to request these refrigerated units from the state to serve as makeshift morgues. They say they don't need it yet, but it's a proactive measure. Um, Their storage space for corpses has yet to be overwhelmed. But when you have numbers like these and look at that percentage of positivity cases and hospitalization, you're expecting the death rate to jump a couple weeks later. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, as dire as it gets. I was per- and I was surprised last night to see that Cleveland had set its all-time record. Uh, I'd love to get some details of of who all those people are. Where is that expanding in the city? And we had the story about a city councilman traveling to Egypt, so maybe it's people traveling and bringing it back. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How much coronavirus vaccine does Ohio expect by the end of the year and who's first in line to get it? Laura Johnston, Mike DeWine held a special briefing on Friday to talk about just how he wants to dole this out, how it's going to work and roughly how much he expects. What are the details? 
So they're expecting about 659,000 doses of two coronavirus vaccines before the end of the year. Those are the vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna. And they both require two boosters, uh, or sorry, two doses, boosters coming a few weeks after the first shot. So that actually means we're looking at about 330,000 Ohioans immunized because those shots need to be doubled. So the phase 1A rollout would start around December 15th, and that would deliver vaccines to healthcare providers and personnel routinely involved with the care of COVID patients, residents and staff at nursing facilities, assisted living homes, veterans' homes, psychiatric hospitals, and then EMS responders. And the objective of this is to save lives by protecting A, the most vulnerable people, and then B, the healthcare workers who are caring for them so they can stay on the job. But that's not enough vaccine to immunize all healthcare workers in Ohio. So obviously, um, it's going to be up to the hospitals to prioritize who gets vaccinated first. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised that their strategy, that because you need to get two shots 30 days apart, you know, you would think if I'm getting 100,000 vaccinations, not enough for the dosages, that I would give 50,000 people the shots and reserve the other for the second shot. And he said, I'm not doing that. I'm going to go out and vaccinate 100,000 people and I guess count on replenishment to give them their second shot. That was a little bit of a surprise because if I get the first one and they don't have any when I'm ready for the second one, how effective is the is my immunity? Yeah, it, it, I mean, that's a good question. It's a question people keep harping on um, how this is going to work. And I, I think, I mean... I think it's going to be confusing, definitely, as first. Laura Hancock, well, actually, we had um, Laura Hancock normally asked our questions, but I think it was Julie Washington that asked on Friday for us to DeWine about how other vulnerable groups who are not part of that phase are going to be vaccinated. People who work in jails, they care for, care for relatives, fast food grocery store employees. DeWine said he hadn't looked beyond this first phase A1, but he's taking guidance from public health experts. He said he's, he realizes there's going to be inequities, but they're trying to do the best they can to be fair. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised at that answer, too, because it's not like we haven't had plenty of time to think about this. There ought to be a priority list right now. And you would think that it would have best practices across the nation that we'd all pretty much match up. Where will teachers be in this? The teachers that are required to go to school and mix with students and like like our question, the fast food workers, the retail workers that are keeping us alive by keeping the the, the shelves stocked. That you you would think that by now we would have job characteristics of who's getting this, and he basically said, "Yeah, I haven't thought that far." When when do you think that far? I mean, it's... I, I think this is all happening pretty fast, and I mean. Remember in March when we kept saying 12 to 18 months for a vaccine. And so it's, we're not even 10 months out from when this pandemic started and we're talking about when the shipments come in. So I, I mean, I'm floored that it's, it's been this fast. And maybe that's part of it that nobody really thought it was going to get here that fast. So they didn't plan for it. They're too busy figuring out how to treat the patients we had. Um, the New York Times had a really interesting uh, infographic over the weekend that like you could put in where you live and your characteristics and it'll tell you where you are in line, like in a, in a line of a hundred hypothetical people. And it even has like people drawn back and forth, crisscrossing in a line. And I was sixth to last. So, <laughs> yeah, see, I, I'm not sure I agree. I think that they've had plenty of time. I mean, we've been talking about a vaccine since April, and you would think that you would have created a task force then to say, hey, look, eventually when the vaccine's here, let's be very thoughtful and methodical and transparent about how we're doing it. 
But to be standing in front of the media on a Friday in December saying, yeah, I haven't thought that far. That's a little bit surprising to me. You might think it's fast. I think it's it's a sign that they're they're not preparing as quickly as they should. It's this week in the CLE. How is Ohio's role in the space race way back in the 1960s playing in the into a threat to the planet from space junk. Jane Cahoon, this is one of my favorite stories of the past week. Sabrina, <laughs> Sabrina Eaton wrote it. It's uh, it's a delightful little piece of Ohio space history uh, for when we were going to the moon. What's it about? Yeah, the, I think this is a story anybody could would find interesting, even a, a science dummy like me. So, and as you said, of course, it's got an Ohio tie, which which makes it all the better. But I'll, I'll take a crack at at explaining this given my limited scientific abilities. Astronomers in Hawaii, they, they, they look for these asteroids that could crash into Earth, and, and they spotted this mysterious object in the sky in September. And, and at first, they, they thought it was just another celestial rock and that it was too small to damage Earth if it, if it got too close. But they studied it some more because they, they were just intrigued by the size of it and it, and this unusual orbit so so close to earth and um so somebody who's the director of NASA's Center for Near Earth Object Studies in California examined the orbit and and realized that it that it had passed close enough to earth in 1966 to have originated here so he hypothesized that um this uh thing that well the, first of all they dubbed it 2020 SO so they hypothesized that it was actually a Centaur upper stage rocket booster from the ill-fated Surveyor 2 unmanned mission that that was supposed to explore the moon's surface. And that was launched right around the same time in 1966. And um, so that ill-fated mission was intended to, you know, softly land on the moon and send pictures back to, to Earth. And um, instead, it crashed. So this Centaur rocket booster, which was developed at NASA Glenn uh, Research Center in Cleveland, the, the booster that propelled the lander, the lander to the moon, but it kept hurtling into the solar system, uh, as I guess it was meant to do. And, and it settled into this orbit that, that brought it back into the Earth's vicinity this year. So last week, the, the scientists uh, figured out that, in fact, it, it definitely was this Centaur rocket booster from the Surveyor 2 uh, mission, which, you know, NASA developed the Centaur rocket and managed it, you know, for a number of years. And these rockets are, are still used today for unmanned missions, you know, for weather and communication satellites and, and missions to, to other planets. Yeah, I hadn't realized. I guess I'd forgotten that we had tried to land on the moon to pick landing sites and that that had, had not gone well. There were so many parts of the space program that did not go well. It's still a miracle we made it. But uh, cool story, a little bit of history. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. As Cuyahoga County Executive Armand Budish races to spend all of the federal coronavirus relief we received before the end of the year deadline, how might restaurants benefit? Laura Johnston, those sectors probably been harder hit than restaurants. They've been closing. They've been begging for some government aid. It looks like Budish is going to use some of the federal money we got to help them out. 
Yeah, they're going to use $1.2 million in CARES money and give grants up to $10,000 each to local restaurants with unpaid rent, utilities, and uh, costs of COVID-19 safety-related um, additions, and anything that incurred from March 1st through December 31st. So grant applicants must have opened before January 1st of this year. They must record either less than $8 million or or um, 12, I don't know, something less than $12 million, depending on their service level in, in um, revenue. And 25% of the employees that they have must be county residents. So they must serve food. So bars without kitchens are not eligible. But Budish acknowledged how bad it's been for these restaurants. And he said that the county has become this foodie county with great, great, great local restaurants. They give the county character and they've been hurt really badly. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a nice bit of relief. I know that there's still a move in Congress to try and get something done by the end of the year to provide even more, but uh, good for Armin for trying to help him out with the money he has in hand. It's this week in the CLE. With the disastrous experience America is having with the coronavirus, especially compared to most of the rest of the world, did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine really say last week that Donald Trump has done an excellent job with this pandemic? Jane Cahoon, I, I think any objective measure of Donald Trump's performance on the coronavirus would say colossal failure. He lied in the beginning about whether it was a thing. He tried to persuade people not to wear masks. He screwed up the testing because he thought positive tests made him look bad. I mean, we we have done a terrible job. There's been no unified messaging from the top to the bottom. It's nothing like what happened in World War II when the leaders said, let's get together, let's get through this. So how in in the world can Mike DeWine say that? Well, this is what happens when he puts on his political hat as opposed to his uh, scientific uh, hat. But anyway, the, as he, so he he kicked off this virtual meeting Friday with the Ohio Republican Party. And as we know, DeWine plans to run for reelection in two years. And and he really wants to shore up his Republican support to, to head off any potential challengers from the right or or from the pro-Trump camp. So he, he kicked off this meeting by heaping praise on the president as well as uh, Vice President Mike Pence. He uh, emphasized his role as co-chairman of Trump's Ohio campaign and, and he recapped how he, he told Trump at the airport that he expected him to win the state. And, and he also um, focused on the vaccine and, and praised Trump for intervening back in March uh, when they were trying to get those, that, Mask technology approved the the sanitizing of the of the masks, but um, of course, as you said, he conveniently ignored how Trump's approach to the virus was completely at odds with with his, and for all the reasons that you you laid out when you asked me the question. But anyway, so, so where's his integrity hat then? I mean, it it to to say he's done a fabulous job with the coronavirus is demonstrably false. Doesn't he care about telling the truth here? Well, I wish I could answer that. But, you know, and it's particularly interesting because this submission to Trump comes after Trump recently jabbed DeWine on Twitter, you know, speculating who might challenge him in 2022. And that was because he was mad at DeWine at that point for saying on TV that that Biden was the president-elect and uh, that, that the transition uh 
should proceed. So, so that was a real awkward moment for the Republican Party, and it and it kind of got people the the anti Dewine sentiment people got all worked up, and and uh, of course none of this was mentioned at this GOP meeting. And Party Chairman Jane Timken was calling for party unity, saying that you know Republicans are a family, and we might have disagreements, but we need to stick together. And she said. We're higher thinkers, in my opinion. That's why we have disagreements. So it was all, you know, kumbaya here at this at this meeting. It was just a kind of an alternate reality. Yeah. What I'm drilling into, though, is the the, the statement that the president's done a good job with the coronavirus. There are a lot of people in this country that blame him for the deaths in their family, that if he had done the right thing and been a leader in the crisis, that we would have far fewer deaths. We The virus would not have spread as far. And, you know, your job as an elected leader is to tell the truth. And that's you're never going to get Mike DeWine to, to so say don't that. say anything. Then don't, then don't say anything. But to come out and say he's done a fabulous job with the coronavirus when that's demonstrably a false statement. It's the, one of the worst performances in a crisis in American history. I, I just I was you read that and you just thought, you know, who is this guy? He holds himself out to be a man of integrity, and that's just an outright falsehood. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who are the Republican Northeast Ohio Congress members who are undermining the Constitution by refusing to say that Joe Biden won the presidential election? I don't get it. The Washington Post did a big survey, and there's a whole bunch of people in Ohio, Jane Cahoon, that won't say that Joe Biden won. What is going on with these people? Well, it's easier to tell you who the Republican Congress members are who who are admitting Biden won the election. And as you said, the Washington Post reached out to every single Republican member of Congress to try to get them to take a quick survey on a few questions, including who they think won the presidential election. Really hard question, right? So in total for the whole Republican delegation in Congress, only 27 of them acknowledged that Joe Biden won. Two of them said Donald Trump won. Nobody from Ohio said that. And another 220 either didn't respond or gave unclear answers. So getting to Ohio, the only Ohio Republicans to acknowledge Biden's win were representatives Anthony Gonzalez of uh, Rocky River and um, Steve Stivers of the Columbus area. Stivers even congratulated Biden and and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. But And then Rob Portman was listed as giving an unclear answer, you know, he, I could read you his statement, but it's pretty no, much no like need. what, what he's been saying. Um, but, uh, but Hey, at least he gave a statement as far as the other Ohio Republicans, it looked to me like all of them simply didn't respond to the post. So they looks like they, they just didn't want to answer that simple question. And, and by the way, that includes Jim Jordan, who you might expect to be one of those ones who would say that Trump won, but he didn't, he declined to respond to them. So uh, he just didn't want to give him the time of day. So. The one that surprises me, I, I'm not surprised about Jordan. Jordan has been a Trump in the bag for Trump for a long time. And so he's not going to cooperate. I'm surprised at Dave Joyce. Dave Joyce has held himself out as kind of the the common sense Republican congressman from Lake Geauga County. And I'm just kind of surprised that that he would not stand up and say, well, yes, of course, Joe Biden won the election. Uh, it's clear. And that's where we'll be next year. 
and to duck it. I mean, it's just there's so much there's so much cowardice in the Republican Party that, that, that what are they afraid of? That if I come out and say, of course, Joe Biden won, that Donald Trump will say mean tweets about me. Donald Trump will be gone on January 21st. I just don't get this this fear. Yeah, I, I can't explain it, but, uh, you know, maybe they feel they don't owe anything to the Washington Post. And so. Yeah, but whatever. but what about their constituents? Do you owe something to your constituents to say this is who I am? This is who I this is what I believe in. I believe in our election system and the election system has spoken and Joe Biden is the next president. Do you owe that at least? I, I wish they <laughs> would be more forthcoming and transparent here. I mean, they, I can't tell you the number of times we pose very direct questions and they don't get answered. Yeah, but I bet if we asked them about the Centaur rocket drifting in space, they'd get back to us right away. Yeah. yeah. You're, <laughs> you're listening to This Week in the CLE. That'll do it. We'll be back tomorrow with the three of us for another discussion of the news. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. <laughs>